Welcome back to the G3 Podcast as we prepare for the release of Season 2 of the podcast. Today is a special episode that will be focused on the subject of Romans 13 and civil disobedience. Joining me today for this roundtable conversation is Phil Johnson from Los Angeles, California, Tom Askell from Florida, and Samuel Say from Canada. Welcome to the G3 Podcast, brothers. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. As we consider that in the fall of this year, uh, we will be celebrating or remembering at least the 400th anniversary from where uh, more than 100 colonists sailed for the New World on a well-known sea vessel known as the Mayflower. Now, these separatist Christians, they renounced the religious practices of the Church of England, and they believed that the Church of England was beyond redemption. So, in 1630, another group would join these separatists uh, in the New World, and again, this group would be known as the Puritans. Over the course of these years, uh, about 21,000 English settlers came to New England. They made up farmers and fishermen and merchants and lawyers and entire family units. And yet when they came off of the ship, when they came off of the boats that they had uh, made their long voyage from, from England to the New World upon, they came off with their personal possessions. And one of those possessions would have been the Geneva Bible. Now, again, the Geneva Bible was birthed out of the Protestant Reformation and was the very first study Bible, complete with study notes from the Reformers in the margins, pointing out the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. So needless to say, the United States of America has a rich history of rebellion, rebellion and and resistance against ungodly leadership. And as we consider the pursuit of religious freedom, and as we think in terms of our own context today, we need to be consistently looking to and thinking through where is that healthy balance between uh, faithful submission to the ruling authorities, as Romans 13 clearly articulates, versus the need to obey God rather than man, uh, as it pertains to the stand of the apostles there in Acts chapter number five. And so as we think through the complexities of this season of social distancing, let's talk and let's have a conversation if we can that might be a, a bit beneficial to other fellow Christians and church leaders as we think about where is the line? When should we actually revolt? When should we actually rebel? And as we think about Romans 13, we must see that obvious point. Paul is driving home to the church in Rome that the government, that the ruling authorities, that they are a blessing for all people. That's Romans 13.1. And within that group of all people would have been the church in the city of Rome. So why is it important, brothers, as we think about Christians and how we should view the governing authorities and the laws of the land? Why should we see it through that proper lens as being a blessing upon the church of Jesus Christ? Well, the, the laws of the land are, are the, the ruling authorities in human governments are ordained of God. God ordained the family. God ordained the church. God ordained the uh, civic realm to be ruled by authority that is delegated to them from him. So, this is good. This is by his design and where you have uh, rulers and civil authority that rule in the fear of the Lord, there's blessing 
And where there is righteousness, we see a nation is exalted, as the proverb says. So all of this comes from God. We should receive it as a blessing from him. The, the alternative is anarchy. And uh, that, that would be disastrous at, at any point. That's why even bad government is better than no government. And so when they're bad rulers, we still can recognize God's goodness in the way that he has vested uh, all civil authorities with the authority that comes from him. So, I, so it's a blessing, but another important point that I'm sure we'll touch on later is that no civil authority has that authority autonomously. They all have it from the very hand of God, and therefore all civil authorities need to uh, rule in ways that are under the authority of the God who created them. Yeah, Tom, so you make a very important point. You say that uh, civil government is given to us by God, and of course Romans 13 specifically states that. There is no authority except from God. But yet as we think about our present uh, governmental structure, and as we consider the civil rulers of our present day, we would all agree that there is no perfect system, right? That all system has flaws, and it, it has that simply because of the fact that all of these systems are made up by sinners, and so they're all going to be leading in an imperfect way. So with that said, although we can say that it's a blessing, we also come to it with this understanding that it's not perfect, Right. Right. Yeah. One of the great blessings of government that Paul lists there in Romans 13 is, in fact, he says in verse four that this is a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid because he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. This is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the, the role of government there is pretty clear. It, it's a deterrent to the full expression of human depravity. Uh, and if there were no government, go, no government, if we totally defunded the police, for example, uh, it would unleash an expression of human depravity, such as we've seen in those places where police aren't permitted to do their their work. So there's a specific reason that God assigns, and Scripture says, "Vengeance is mine." But here it says uh, that he he exercises; he's an avenger of that brings wrath on the one who. Uh, practices evil. So he's doing this as delegated by God. And I think it's interesting that Paul wrote this passage at a time when, you know, in at the top of the chain in the government, there was Nero, who was perhaps one of the most evil men who ever ruled in the human sphere. Uh, and still, Paul says, obey those. He's, he's talking, I think, about mostly local authorities. He's telling Christians and churches not to engage in the kind of violent uh, civil disobedience, uh, rioting, and and uh, misbehavior, and all that. Um, he's not excusing the evil things that Caesar does, and he's not saying that we have to um, sanction those evil things. But he is saying that we have to we we need to submit to what's lawful and right for the sake of peace in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a valid point. And when you, you, you make mention of the idea that he's in a, uh, that, that civil leaders and rulers are an avenger, uh, the very idea of a punisher, someone who is uh, exercising justice. And so the, the civil leaders, the rulers, uh, they have been given this sword uh, and to exercise the, within that sphere, 
they have been given the authority to exercise and to wield the sword in a way that is not given to, say, the church, for instance. And so we should see that as a blessing, as a deterrent, but also as a means of of bringing about justice and law and order to uh, keep peace rather than anarchy in the streets and within the neighborhoods and, and communities within our present culture. Right. In fact, with all the talk of social justice these days, rarely do people who use that term have in mind the punishment of evildoers. And yet that is a, a vital aspect of what scripture refers to as justice. Absolutely. Well, in terms of this present state of this COVID confusion, the season that we're living in, how has the government in various ways been guilty of overreach uh, in their insistence of churches to maintain some level of social distancing policies and procedures to the point of even non-gathering restrictions? So what have you guys experienced? Maybe we'll start with you, Samuel. Yeah, um, we're, we've just now, uh, well, maybe a last month and a half or a couple of months now, uh, where I am in Ontario, particularly Toronto, churches now can meet, but with um, some, I think only a third um, of the of the churches can meet or up to 90 people. Um, and we're grateful that we can meet. Um, and yet we know that that is still inconsistent with a lot of other um, you know, say, for example, um, we know, we recognize that gross, grocery stores are essential, that, you know, they feed the public. We, we recognize that. And yet we know that um, the church is where we get a lot of our sp- spiritual food, That's where, um, you know, we, we go to worship. And just just knowing that while they have you know, while in many ways we know that we know that there are some people, uh, for example, some Christian politicians in, in in the city or in in the country, who very much care about the church, and yet we know that they have been inconsistent with the church, um, and that is of course not new. They have been in, in they have not been very consistent in many ways throughout this entire um, thing, and um, that's absolutely affecting the church over here too in in Toronto. Tom, what about yourself? Yeah, well. Man, I praise God. We regularly thank the Lord for the governor he's given us in uh, Ron DeSantis. The first government um, executive order that he issued, I think, or one of the early ones, it seemed to impinge upon churches. And then he quickly added a, 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 an addendum that said, you know, churches are not, this doesn't apply to churches. And so he recognized the First Amendment right that we have in the United States. And, and this is why I, I, you can't talk about Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, in our American, North American or United States context without dealing with the constitutional issues. And so you can, there's two conversations. I recognize that, but you cannot rightly have one without the other. So for a United States citizen who is a Christian to talk about uh, how churches should respond to their governmental uh, leaders, how Christians should respond, we have to do so in the context of recognizing we have a constitutional republic. So Governor DeSantis has been great. Local authorities hadn't been all that great. Local authorities here where I live have been fine, but right across the peninsula in Miami, 
Uh, there's been some draconian uh, steps that have been taken where now you got to wear masks in public. And uh, you when you're walking from the grocery store to your car, they, they have issued fines to people recently in Miami because they took off their masks before getting to their cars. Uh, that type of thing. And they continue to keep businesses closed down. But uh, where we are here, the, the governor has basically said, hands off on churches. We're going to just leave you with your First Amendment to do what you think is best. And so that's what we just tried to exercise wisdom as a congregation in, in doing that. And and I'm grateful for our local state context, especially when I read about uh, my poor brother, Phil, and what he's had to deal with with his governor. Yeah, that's true. The uh, governor of California is more or less, I would say, openly hostile to Christianity. I mean, even a decade ago, he was making news uh, campaigning for gay marriage and and uh, actually ignoring laws. He was the mayor of San Francisco at the time, and uh, he was doing gay marriage before it was even legal. So he's a kind of scoff law and a hater of biblical law. Uh, and he he has imposed perhaps more rigid uh, restrictions, not only against the church, but against all society than perhaps any other governor in the state. But what's most galling, I think, to believers in California is that uh, when they when they categorized what's essential and non-essential, they they pointedly excluded churches and any kind of religious services from the category of essential, while they included liquor stores, marijuana dispensaries, abortion clinics, all of these, in fact, pretty much every vice you can name, the casinos are still open. Uh, the All the vices are deemed essential, but churches are deemed non-essential. And uh, I mean, that sort of lies at the heart of my argument that uh, although people argue this is not persecution against the church, I think it it is cleverly disguised, but there is definitely some persecution against the church in there. And these rules have been unfairly enforced, as you've seen, I'm sure, on television. We've had massive uh, demonstrations and even violent riots, and there's no attempt to force the people who are participating in those things uh, to practice social distancing or wear masks or actually obey any kind of law. They're, they're uh, people in the government actually fomenting and fostering lawlessness while uh, there seems to be a special you know the church is under a microscope if you step out of line in any way you're going to hear from the health department or some authority um and so it's been particularly onerous to the church and at one point he opened churches uh, in the sense that he said you can meet but even at that he put such restrictions on the church attendance caps. Uh, in our congregation, for example, we have routinely 12,000 people or so that we minister to on a regular basis. But the limit was you can't have any more than 100 people in the sanctuary at a time, even though it's massive uh, building that's uh, that would seat 3,000 people. We weren't permitted to have more than 100, according to the, the governor's edict. Uh, he he also outlawed singing. He said he didn't want any singing in the religious gatherings. And um, he also passed a rule that uh, that in effect outlawed home groups as well. It wasn't just aimed at churches, but he said uh, gatherings in homes, even for birthday parties or family celebrations, only the people who live in that house can gather there. If you if you have any kind of party or gathering or Bible study or prayer group, 
where people who don't live in your home come, then you're you're breaking his rules. So it became extremely onerous. And and for at least 21 weeks, most of those rules were in effect, keeping us from being able to do the sort of shepherding and public worship that Scripture commands. If I could just uh, add to that, um, one of the concerns that now I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor, I'm just a blogger, but um, just from what I've been reading and studying, I'm, I've been a bit, I've been quite concerned actually about how many of us seem to understand persecution or discrimination against the church. Um, just from my reading with just Roman Roman history in persecuting Christians, they didn't just persecute Christians; they were persecuting Jews and really anybody who wouldn't conform to the Roman culture. Uh, even in China right now, they're not just persecuting Christians; they're persecuting um, the Uyghurs and any anybody else again who is not going to um, be, you know, obedient to their communist and Marxist policies. And even in Nigeria, right next door to uh, where I was born in Ghana, where Boko Haram isn't just killing um, Christians, they're killing other groups too. So the perception, the idea that persecution or discrimination against the church has to be directly and strictly against the church is just not in line with how I would say even the Bible des- describes discrimination or his or even with history. So if we continue in thinking over that in that way, we're going to be in trouble where we can always excuse uh, government overreach that hurts the church just because we're thinking it's not directly against the church. I, I don't think that's a wise or helpful way of understanding these issues. Samuel, I think you're spot on, brother. And again, it goes back to that Romans 13, 4, that says that the governing authority is God's servant, God's servant. And yet I don't see many Christian leaders today who are willing to say to the president, to Governor Newsom, to Governor DeSantis, anybody else, you are God's servant. And the sword that you have in your hand has been placed there by God. And you're accountable to God to rule in, in accordance with his will. And so you are you are under obligation from your creator to do what is righteous, to do what is right and good. And if you don't, then you're violating the God who ordained that you rule in that position. It's like statism has come in so subtly to the thinking of, of Christian leaders today. I'm, I'm just blown away by this, quite honestly, who have as a default mode, what, whatever the civil authority says, we must do. Well, not at all. Not at all. He has his authority, not autonomously. He has it delegated to him from God. And so we have to always measure what our civil authorities are telling us by what God has revealed to us in his word. And so the man, what's happened to businesses, what's happened to people, I think by these civil uh, dictates that Uh, as has been demonstrated now over these last several months, were at best unwise. I mean, Dr. MacArthur made this point when he spoke on uh, Tucker Carlson the other night, what, 8,500 people died in California from COVID, 6,000 a year die from flu in California, and and less than uh, 2% or 0.02% are going to die from this disease. So let's shut down all the businesses. You're destroying livelihoods. You're destroying people who suicide rates, other sicknesses are taking lives. Uh, this, These have been unwise, and I would argue unjust, unrighteous decisions that have been made by civil authorities 
give them a little pass at the beginning when it's a novel virus, nobody knows what's going on. But we have far more evidence now than we did back in March. And for these kind of draconian steps to continue is, is I'm, I'm not just going to say it's wrong. It's wicked. It's wicked. And where are God's people willing to stand up and say to, to the emperor, hey, look, what you're doing is wicked. You may not have your brother's wife. We just we don't have that sense about us anymore today. It seems to me. I I know I know um, parents, particularly single mothers, who've been struggling to make mm-hmm. ends meet. Yeah, they're getting money from the government, but it's not nearly um, what they need to afford all their expenses. And if it was a an average person who came and forced someone out of work. And say, you do not have the right as a parent, especially as a father, to provide for your family. We would say that's unjust. When it's the government, we seem to think then that it becomes a matter of justice because of their intentions. Um, as we said, the government has authority that not every other person has. Right? They have a unique authority. But not to, not to um, keep a father from his or a parent from their duty to their family. Right? And it's concerning, again, that um, we're not, you know, and, and, and I think one of the concerns is that, um, you know, I've said before that, uh, you know, I'm writing an article about this, that I think one of the reasons why we reformed people have become so vulnerable to this critical theory or social justice ideology is because we have not, I, I, from my perspective, that we have not been understanding the totality of scripture. We're not understanding all of what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation. And we have allowed the culture to teach uh, young people. We've allowed you know, uh, professors to be teaching what justice means. Um, now, of course, they, they, they teach, they will, these professors or politicians would describe injustice as actual justice. So now pastors and parents, uh, um, from my perspective, from what I've seen, have given over that, uh, responsibility to people who do who hate God and who do not love justice, and now we're seeing that it being exposed through just this whole the last five years with critical theory being uh, mainstream now, but also with how many of us I think have failed to uh, think through um, these issues and w- what the government's role is on, on this issue in a very biblical way, where we've seemed to have just said that well. The government seems to have the authority. That's what they should be doing. But no, the Bible has told us how to think through these issues. Um, and uh, if we keep going forward, uh, I think, again, we will, we will be in trouble. And I'm very grateful that, you know, John MacArthur was able to uh, write that statement and to to do what he's doing because, um, you know, he, I can't say he's disobeying God by doing so. But yet, unfortunately, many people, I think, believe that because, in my opinion, um, we are not um, understanding the totality of Scripture on these issues. Yeah, brothers, let me press the conversation um, a bit. So we've discussed Romans 13 from the sense that Paul was writing to the church in Rome and making the clear point that government can be, the ruling authorities can be, and are intended to be God's servants, and so therefore a blessing to all people, but specifically, as he writes here, to the church. And so we as Christians can, can see that uh, these governing authorities can be a blessing to us. But in what sense can we 
not just glorify God through submission, but also glorify God through rebellion. So in the sense that, Tom, you were mentioning a moment ago, uh, what what leader is going to stand and, and point to Caesar, so to speak, and say that you can't have your brother's wife? So the reason why, perhaps, that we don't see many pastors having the the courage and the conviction to do so is because they know what happened to John the Baptist. It did not end well for him. And so uh, when we think about Paul saying to the church, you must submit, this glorifies God. In what sense can we rebel and glorify God? So in other words, where's the line between faithful submission in Romans 13 and Acts 5? No, we, we must obey Christ and not you. Yeah, well, it is exactly the way you framed it, uh, recognizing that all civil authority comes from God and that they have responsibilities to, to do what? To punish evil and to promote what is good. And they must do so based on God's standards of evil and good because they're God's servants. And whenever they defy that and and even overreach beyond that, I think we have an obligation to resist, especially, I mean, everybody, every Christian would say that if we're commanded tomorrow uh, in the United States to uh, say that Donald Trump is Lord, well, we would all say, no, we're, we're going to break that law. We're not going to uh, bow to that kind of, of insistence on sin. But we've seen if the government says, okay, you're not going, you're not allowed to meet this week or this month, or you have to wear a mask or you have to do these other things. And they use whatever rationale to justify their ordinance. There's a default mode that seems to be within Christians to say, okay, we got to do it because the government says it because Romans 13. And I just want to call upon Christians to stop and think, let's consider this government for a minute. Praise God for the United States and all the blessings we have here. It's a wonderful country. If compared to utopia, of course not. But compared to the other nations of the world, God has blessed us in incredible ways. But look at the the government we have had since 1973. Our government has legalized the slaughter of untold millions, tens of millions of babies. This is a government that not only is unafraid to violate the Sixth Commandment, they have ensconced within our law the violation of the Sixth Commandment. Why in the world would we automatically assume that they're going to keep the Ninth Commandment and tell us the mm-hmm. truth? Mm-hmm. We, we need, as citizen kings in a constitutional republic, we need to verify what's being said, especially when things start getting to be as sketchy as they have grown over the last few months. And just because the government says, oh, you got to do this because COVID, uh, I, I think we're going to, I mean, I feel compelled. I don't have any qualms of conscience at, at all. In fact, I think I'm serving my neighbors well. I'm loving my neighbors well by asking the questions, why, why this? And why should we go along with what you say must be done today when you were telling us the opposite uh, just a couple of months ago? And that's certainly, listen to Dr. Fauci, talk about masks back in March and what he's saying today, they're 180 degree opposite. And the arguments he was using back then are still sustainable today. They, they haven't changed. All the warnings he gave back then are still true today. Uh, so why the, the difference in his approach today? So I think a healthy skepticism belongs to those of us who call Jesus Lord in listening to our government in times like this. And let me quickly add, I believe the government has the right at times in extreme circumstances to say, church, you must not meet. 
I mean, we have hurricanes bearing down on us. We may have one in a few days here in Florida. And, you know, the civil authorities will often say, shut your businesses. You need to evacuate. And I, I think in extreme circumstances, the government can do that. But we've moved way beyond extreme circumstances with the COVID-19. And now then uh, there's just so much conflicting data, uncertainty. And it seems like this is being used, as Phil pointed out, uh, against the people of God. If, if they really cared about the spread of this virus, they'd be shutting down the riots. They'd be shutting down the protests. They'd be closing the abortuaries. They'd be closing the liquor stores. It wouldn't just be uh, this, oh, no, we've got to do this and, and churches can't meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a valid point. The discerning listener will be able to remember uh, you you made a distinction between a republic and a democracy, but that's a conversation for a completely different day, Tom. Um, as we think about this issue, though, Phil, in recent days, there's been a bit of a controversy with uh, things in California, and you guys there at Grace Church have released a statement from the elders titled, uh, Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. And basically, you were informing the members of your church, as well as the civil leaders, of your intention to openly defy their authority. And so you were drawing a distinction in the uh, in the sand, if you will, a line in the sand uh, between Romans 13 and Acts 5. And so um, as as that has been played out in the public sphere for for us to see from a from a distance, so to speak, speak to us a bit about the context of your local church and and what led to this stand and how has it uh, how has it affected uh, you guys as a church and and what support or else opposition are you guys experiencing? Yeah, you know when the quarantine began, we were thinking very much like what uh, what Tom described there. Uh, we didn't know how serious the virus might prove to be. Uh, it seemed like a short-term thing. You remember the government was saying at the time, we just need 15 days to flatten the curve, 15 days to flatten the curve. We did the math and said, at most, that's going to be three Sundays that we'll have to be off. We're, we're willing to, uh, to um, consent to the, the quarantine restrictions and, and just do online church you know, until the quarantine need has passed. At the end of 15 days, no, we need another 15 days. We need 30 days. And that dragged out over what became nearly five months, which meant for 21 weeks, our congregation couldn't meet. uh, And which meant that we couldn't do the necessary pastoral work. I I shepherd a, a, a little flock inside our church, 400 people whom I am pastorally responsible for. It's like an adult Sunday school class. But if anyone dies or gets married or whatever, I do the funerals, the weddings and all of that. And uh, in my little group over the span of the quarantine, we had four people die, not one of them from COVID-19, all from different reasons. And they weren't permitted to have funerals. Uh, They were not permitted to have visitors when they died. They died in isolation without any kind of pastoral care. The longer that sort of thing heaps up and you realize people are starved for fellowship, this is not healthy for the church. And yet our governor begins to intensify the restrictions and crack down on the church even more. Um, The more we began to say, you know, we need to take another look at what is our biblical duty here? Because at first, you may have the the weight of your conscience saying, look, Romans 13 is important. We need to submit. But 
there's also Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And all the commands that are given to elders and pastors in the church to to see to the, the needs of their congregation, to minister to one another, to give encouragement to one another. We aren't able to do that. And the longer it drags out, the more the weight of Hebrews 10.25 begins to weigh on your conscience. And as we looked at it, we thought, you know, there is a sphere of authority where Caesar has legitimate right, as Tom said, to, you know, have building codes and and uh, things like that. And, and we submit to those things. But once the the edicts of Caesar begin to tell us how, when and whether we should even worship, he's overstepped his authority and we need to obey God rather than men. And at that point, Acts 5:21 Acts 5:29 comes into play. We we must obey God rather than men. And so our statement is an extended justification for why we feel that is the case here. Um and that's what brought it about. I I think we we have 50 elders, so it takes a little bit longer than the average church for all of our elders to get on the same page. Uh some of us began to come to these these conclusions weeks ago, and it took others a little longer. Um, but we're all there. And um, uh, John MacArthur, you know, wrote this statement sort of leading us to see there is a dimension to our duty as shepherds that uh, that we can't just passively sit by and without any kind of question, let Caesar give us orders on how, when, and whether we should worship, how many people should be in this service. And even it got in California to the point where he's saying, I don't want you to sing. Do we obey that? When the scripture's full of commands to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, ultimately you have to obey God rather than men. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in recent days, we have seen crazy statements online, you know, that, that suggest that it's actually safer to go to a protest than it is to gather with a local church, which is absurd. It's it's absolutely crazy talk. And yet many pastors like uh, Andy Stanley and others are actually canceling their churches for the remainder of the entire calendar year. And so Frankly, in Andy's case, that's a bit of a blessing. <laughs> well, absolutely it is. But, but you know, I, again, I just want to commend you guys and your elders and, and Dr. MacArthur for taking a bold stand. And I, again, I think it, to this issue, I think that you can actually glorify God by rebelling against authority that that has overreached. And so I think that you guys have been a great example in that. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, let me give you one more uh, example of why our thinking on this is, is why we're so passionate about this issue. Let's take the issue of masks. Tom, Tom mentioned this. It's a disputed issue. Are they, are they helpful or are they not? Uh, and there is no end of people you hear repeatedly saying, Second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So you have to wear a mask as if wearing a mask dispenses with all your duties under the second great commandment. And as a pastor, I'm thinking, but what about these people who are isolated and sick and can't get pastoral visits? What about the people who are starved for fellowship? What about the people who need the church? And what does the second great commandment obligate me to do for them? And I, I think I think it's very short-sighted for so many Christians today to to boast that they're fulfilling the second great commandment by wearing a mask that may or may not even do any good. It looks like mere virtue signaling. 
And, um, uh, and so, you know, we decided when we reconvened the church, and by the way, this took, took place weeks before the statement was issued, because our people began to spontaneously return to church. And we didn't bar them from coming in. John MacArthur was in the worship center preaching, and it just began to fill up. And people weren't wearing masks. And uh, other people seeing that said, aren't you going to enforce the mask rule? And we decided, look, that's a classic Romans 14 issue, you know, let everyone be persuaded in his own mind. Some people think it does good and some people think it doesn't. And I don't want to bind the conscience of either side. So we decided to leave it up to the individual. Most of the people who will be in our worship center on Sunday will not be masked. There will be some wearing masks, but there are plenty of places on campus where you can go and still hear the message and participate in the worship and practice as rigid uh, social distancing things as you want. We're leaving that up to the individual. We think our people are mature enough and spiritual enough that they can make those decisions and we can live under the principles of Romans 14 and put up with one another, even though we don't all necessarily see eye to eye on every aspect of the questions this has raised. It's a really good point, Phil. Uh, Tom, uh, from a pastoral perspective, again, just kind of, you know, extending what Phil was addressing there related to masks. I mean, the controversy is clear. We see this on social media. We have church members that are fighting over issues or at least addressing issues of the philosophy of mask wearing. So, uh, are, are should pastors be willing to split their churches over that very issue? And so how would you address that with your own church? And perhaps what means of communication have you guys, your elders, been in contact with your church about those various issues? Yeah, well, from early on, uh, at the outset, when we first heard the warnings and then we did not meet for two weeks, we started hammering on Christian liberty and just reemphasizing what the Bible says about liberty. So Romans 14, 1 Corinthians uh, 9, 8 and 9, those were, were key passages just setting before our people that each one should be convinced in his own mind. And we did that with regard to how we came back to when we started meeting again. We said, look, nobody knows your life better than you do. And if you have comorbidities, you have other considerations. Some of our folks care for elderly people. Some work in certain sectors where it would be unwise for them to, to be exposed to too much risky uh, contact. We trust your judgment. We're going to encourage you and support you in that. We want to help you not cave into fear, not to be unwise and frivolous or foolish, but to determine before God, how can you best honor him, either by wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or coming or not coming. So similar to what Phil said, we have places where people can come and practice as much social distancing as they want to. Uh, we say you wear a mask, you don't wear a mask. We've had people show up in PPE and that's fine. Nobody looks down on them. We, we continually hammer that we're to love one another and trust that they are doing what they believe is most God honoring given their own circumstance. So teaching that has been significant. And then also teaching our folks to not call sin that which God does not call sin. And to be willing to call sin that which God calls sin, which basically is law and gospel. Understand what the Bible says. Uh, th this has been massive in, in keeping us from getting uh, driven too far away from uh, right thinking in, in the face of all kinds of messages telling us what we must do, even, especially messages telling us this is what you must do to love your neighbor. And, and like Phil 
I've heard this multiple times. I was in a group of pastors not too long ago where uh, they were talking about what their churches are doing and, and why they're doing what they're doing. And that phrase was used repeatedly. Well, we're wearing masks. We're not meeting yet because we want to show love to our neighbors. Or when we show up at our facilities, we wear masks so that our neighbors will see that we love them because we want to love our neighbors. And, and when the question came to me about what we were doing, I said, our elders decided that the most loving thing we could do for our neighbors is to meet every Lord's day and worship the God of creation who sent his son into the world to redeem sinners to himself so that we might have eternity with him and not go to hell because he's worthy of being worshiped. And we are loving our neighbors by doing that. We're proclaiming there's a God who is worthy of worship when we assemble. And that's the most loving thing we can do. And I, I don't think oftentimes we Christians, we kind of forget that. We kind of forget that testifying being the church, putting the manifold wisdom of God on display is a loving thing to do for unbelievers who have souls that are going to spend eternity somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the biblical prescription for showing love to the brethren puts the priority on koinonia, fellowship and association. And that word is loaded with ideas like community and, and intimacy, communion, social intercourse, it's not about masks and distance barriers. Well, as we come to a close, the final uh, question would be this. As we think in terms of local churches in various contexts, certainly we could all agree that there are certain people with underlying health conditions that might actually uh, serve as a necessity for them to stay away from the gathered church for a season. Uh, certainly not indefinitely, but, but for a season. But as we think about the quote-unquote reset of normative life and the practice of normal life, we see people starting to, again, uh, resume normal operations related to their businesses or to their work activities, uh, recreational activities, uh, family vacations, and that sort of thing. But what would be a means of you guys encouraging those who might be listening to this podcast to put a priority upon the regular gathering of the church. In other words, uh, should they be staying away from the church, but yet still engaging in family vacations and typical community interactions? Or should the church be more at the front of the whole return to normality? What would you say to that? Yeah, well, I mean, we have a we have a church covenant. It says that we will give the church a sacred preeminence over all institutions of a human origin. And that needs to be true across the board. Now, obviously, man, what's happened with COVID has, has made shepherding people through that more difficult. And we do want to be sensitive to those that have serious conditions and those who are fearful, trying to help them not to cave into the fear, but be wise. Uh, but it is it is a challenge and, and it is uh, disconcerting when you see people going to grocery stores, uh, going about normal activities, but afraid to come to church because of COVID-19. And that's going to, I mean, that is, it's creating some real challenges to try to help people think rightly about this because they're getting all the messages from our government and from some evangelical leaders and others telling them, of course, you know, the, not, not only is this the right thing to do, it's the most loving thing you can do to stay away. And it's just a lot of work. A lot of pastoral work has to, to happen there to help them to think rightly about priorities and what God's called them to do, what's required of them and what's good for them. Yeah, this whole affair has been a great opportunity, I think, for church leaders to uh, bring back to the forefront and highlight the importance of regular fellowship within the church. Uh, in this, you know, 
this age of electronics and all that, there are a lot of people, I think, who think, hey, it's okay if I just stay home in my pajamas and watch the live stream. And, and I think the quarantine exacerbated that problem. But thankfully, I, I think there's something built into the heart of anyone who has true faith, where you hunger for that fellowship. You want to be with the people of God. And, uh, and that's been a good thing. And I think in our teaching, we need to emphasize that. There, like you said, there are people who are bedridden, homebound for various reasons, cannot get to the fellowship. And this should be a reminder to those of us who are able to partake in the regular communion and fellowship of the church that we owe it to those people who are homebound to reach out to them and minister to them, visit them. Um, uh, Christ himself talks about the importance of visiting the sick. And I think we don't do enough of that, especially in this this online age, you know, where our social interaction is on Twitter rather than face to face. Uh, and so all of this is a reminder, I think, and an opportunity for church leaders to constantly remind the church of the importance of that face to face loving fellowship. Again, we have to think in terms of the priority uh, of, of what we're doing, what we're thinking as, as far as the, the ordinary means of grace and the necessity of the of the gathered church, the koinonia, as Phil mentioned. So again, these are all really good points for us to consider. And I want to thank you gentlemen for joining me for this episode of the G3 podcast. This has been a helpful conversation and I trust it will be helpful to many others as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the G3 podcast. You can find out more information about G3 ministries at our website at g3conference.com. There are a couple of uh, very important um, events that we're going to be rolling out very soon, engaging in. One would be, again, the uh, expository workshop that's going to be in Little Rock, Arkansas. You can find out information and how to register for that event. It's still open to the public, and you can find that on the website as well, as well as the G3 at Sea. And that's going to take place in January as we're going to be taking a cruise through the Caribbean. We're going to be talking about the issues of standing firm in our present evil age. And so it's going to be a means of retreat, but also a a means of conference and encouragement as we will be sitting under the the teaching of Dr. Vody Bauckham. We're also going to be sitting under the teaching of Phil Johnson and Jeremy Vuolo and myself as we're going to be Uh, teaching and as we're going to be discussing various different issues related to cultural apologetics, faithful exposition, and the need to stand firm in our present evil age. We hope that you can join us for that. You can find out information there on the website, g3conference.com. And again, also the registration for the 2021 National Conference in Atlanta, Georgia on the subject and the theme of Christ. We're going to be looking at biblical Christology and talking about the importance and the centrality of Christ in all areas of life, including uh, just normal ebb and flow of life, as well as the weekly gathering and the public worship of Jesus with the gathered church. May God bless you. We hope to see you soon. And we pray that this podcast, as well as all of the ministries of G3, would be an encouragement to you and that you would be an encouragement to your local church for the glory of God.